Welcome to the SaaS Savvy Lab podcast, where we're the source of SaaS founders, entrepreneurs, and CEOs. My name is Luis. I'm the founder of Phantom Agency, a digital marketing agency specializing in scaling SaaS companies. And today I have the pleasure of interviewing Paul. He is the CEO over at FISNA. Uh, first of all, thanks so much for being on here. It's a pleasure having you. And to get started, right, why don't you just kind of like dive into firstly a little bit of your background and then just tell us how you know, things happened in a way for you to, to be in the position to start FISNA. Sure. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Um, so my background is I, um, I grew up in the Midwest, uh, was homeschooled for most of it. Um, went to college kind of young cause I got to pick what I wanted to focus on being homeschooled. And, um, uh, it's a long story. I'll kind of speed through. Went through, um, uh, went to Harvard for a little bit. Went over to uh, Europe, spent some time there, learned German. Decided to uh, study over in Germany. Um, switched from physics, um, especially astrophysics and astronomy, into uh, law. It's a long story. Interesting. <laughs> Reasoning behind it was I wanted. To, I mean, I've always been fascinated by technology and science, and I just kind of. Uh, I thought, look, the biggest way for me to make an impact isn't being an individual contributor, maybe, but by leading a company. So I thought I'm going to try to build a startup. And um, I definitely uh, had a lot of respect for education. So I wanted to make sure that I got a degree of some sort. Uh, for me personally, that meant something uh, pretty uh, substantial at the time. And, uh, and I kind of narrowed it down to, well, if I'm going to go into business, I probably should either do business or law. And I thought, well, what's the weirder one? Maybe that's very useful. So yeah. I did law. Uh, and uh, that was a hard thing to do in a foreign language, but it worked out. And, um, you know, I was able to kind of support myself by having little companies, little startups along the way. And um, through law, kind of realized that there was a big problem in intellectual property. And that problem had to do with the fact that 3D data was not being um, comprehended correctly uh, or universally in a normalized way by computers. Yeah. And what that meant was, you know, you couldn't prevent patent infringement from happening you had to we were reactionary not preventative because so we couldn't catch 3d models being duplicated or being used in another um, 3d model so the way to solve that um, actually became more and more apparent because of the short stint that i had in um, in the world of science specifically physics um, astrophysics you know some of the mathematics that you learn and some of the principles they use so uh, we started off focusing on that use case, but right now FISNA, which is short for physical DNA, so like the DNA of things, if you will, uh, it allows us to break down this patent technology, or patent-pending technology, should say, um, it's all, you know, being protected all over the world, over 120 com uh, countries, and what's really cool about this technology is that it allows us to take 3D data, like real-world data of any kind, and to normalize that down to a way that your computer can understand. So it's kind of like the code of things is actually a better way to describe it. It's codifying the physical world so that the digital world can work with it. Mm -hmm. And there are an, there's an amazing number of applications for that. And um, the vast majority of the world's economy is based in physical goods, and it will be as long as we're physical people. Right. So bringing that technology for the physical world and bring it out of 2D into 3D, that um, has a lot of applications and engineering automation and um, supply chain uh, automation, procurement automation and optimization, uh, inventory management, but also in things like quality control, healthcare, inspection. I mean, there, it really goes on and on and on because, you know, physical things go on and on and on. So there's quite a lot of use cases, but we're trying to be as narrowly focused as we can and really yeah. focusing on that core tech. That's, that's a lot of information. I feel like this is probably the company that's been most for, for being a software company, you're the one that touches the physical world the most, I think, in a, in a sense, but also 
the one that has like you can you can go super broad i feel like i'm not entirely sure how but you can also go very very narrow right so what are some of the like if if you're talking about i mean you obviously mentioned you know wanting to go very narrow into i, I believe into who you service what are the companies if you were to say you know this is my dream client who would that be and why we're very lucky in the sense that we already kind of work with uh, not all of, but a good number of our dream customers. And, um, and, and I honestly think, and, and when I say focus, uh, I really mean on the core technology. And yes, initially, because we're a company, we do have to focus on a few core use cases. We can't sell 500 products of everyone in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, but we're trying to do is build more of a platform. So what the technology isn't is it's not exclusively an application, right? So we, ha- we do have an application layer. Where, in other words, like, you know, think of it like a, a web app or um, just a regular app. It allows you to um, basically take 3D data that you've worked with in the past and see how, it can, um, how that relates to other 3D data. So it can make predictions about how much something would cost uh, if this part is found inside of something else, if something very similar to it already exists. Mm-hmm. And so that's very useful for engineers and it cuts down on their, um, it actually speeds up their engineering productivity quite a bit by about, uh, it increases it fourfold over, in other words, 500% the productivity of where they were before. So you're five times as productive with the technology actually as you are on average without it. Um, for procurement, it gives you all the options. It says, these are the people who can provide these different parts. The, you're ordering 20 different parts and they're all the same thing. They just have different names. Um, what it's really doing is bringing, um, you know, where our focus is currently right now is taking uh, industries that are in the biggest need of this technology, which is, you know, I think, I think things like, you know, medical device companies, aerospace companies, automotive companies. Um, there are even government agencies, you know, uh, involved as well that uh, have, very obvious needs uh, when it comes to physical goods and understanding what things are and how they go together. Um, but we're focusing in on those because they've been the most underserved for the longest time. If you look at the like CAD and PLM type markets, mm-hmm. you know, they're only hitting maybe one fifth of the potential audience because the, pro- uh, the products are very complicated and uh, you know, people who develop physical things don't actually see it until it's manufactured. But if you're in the software world, everybody in your company has seen your product months before it comes out live, um, but not in the physical world. So you're selling something you've never seen. We're trying to kind of fix that. Um, but you're right, there's a lot of application for it. And so what we're trying to do is instead of building an application, primarily was we're working our way towards building this out to be a platform with API so that anyone can build an application using this core technology um, and build their own app you know, that uses this interact with the physical world more. That's really cool. One of the questions that kind of sparked in, in, in my mind was because you mentioned something about patent protection, right? So making sure that other people aren't stealing your, your, your patents for your designs and stuff like that. But doesn't that mean that every single patent that is created has to go through FISNA for, the, for it to be able to be very accurate? That's, I, that's I, a I wonderful question. It's a great question. So um, there are a few ways that you can go about fixing that. And you're right, that is, that is actually a very major problem. And that was, again, this is the initial use case, not the main one right now, but it's still very much an active one. So uh, the patent office doesn't have a lot of 3D models. They've got pictures and drawings and a lot of text, right? So the way that you bridge that gap is you want to, you want to get 3D data from everywhere that you possibly can. Right, um, for people contributing, but also from you know publicly available sources and uh, you know, just as much data as you possibly can gather. 
In addition to that, though, when the public, you can get out of the patent office is, well, first of all, you've got the pictures or drawings, at least, of things. And then you've also got these long, um, you know, complicated uh, write-ups about what they are and how they work. The way that you bridge that gap, if you don't have two sets of 3D models, you know, this is the one that is maybe the infringing model and this is the original, that, that's easy. We can do that all day long. That's really simple. Um, the way that you fix that where 3D models are absent is by understanding through machine learning what a 3D model is, what its attributes are, what it's used for, um, understanding correlations between 2D pictures and 3D models, understanding um, even obscure ones, right? So if I take a picture of the bottom right-hand corner of something, knowing that that's actually the bottom right-hand corner of this CAD model, and that CAD model uh, from this weird orientation, right, which traditional yeah. image recognition might not work very well for, um, and then being able to use that to find out more data. Because the great thing about 3D data is that it's, more data rich. Even if the file sizes are lighter, ironically, the amount of data you can learn from is uh, several orders of magnitude higher. Right. So I can learn from 10 3D models, even if they're lightweight um, in file size, tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of times what I could learn off of the same number of 2D pictures. Mm -hmm. And I could learn things that I could never learn off of 2D pictures. So that's kind of how you bridge that gap. That's awesome. That's really cool. Now, to, to kind of switch gears here and talk a little bit more about the growth of the company, right? Obviously, there's the, the part where you came up with the idea to build it, but then the harder part, which is, you know, how do you actually do everything and, and get it scaled and start, like you said, you said, you mentioned that you've already worked with some of your dream clients. So how do you go, right, from starting the company to getting in touch with the people that you want to talk to that, you know, that would be good clients and so on? So obviously some of the people that listen to the podcast are either first time founders or they want to start their own company. Uh, for example, if I wanted to do something like FISNA, I did, I wouldn't even know where to start. Right. So, um, just kind of like speak to that a little bit to that part of the, the, the process. Right. So every company is a little bit different. Um, you know, our current focus area, we're working on something that's consumer facing and that is sort of um, democratizing the technology that we're building for use cases for everybody, right? Uh, which hasn't come, gone public yet, but it will very soon. Uh, in the meantime, though, for business core product, which is, is more and more or less enterprise focused, right? We have some small companies that use it, you know, that have only a handful of engineers, but most of them are very, very, very big companies and organizations. So um, it, it's really built out for um, to scale well in a large organization. And because of that, since that's the target, you have to be patient and you have to work with, do a lot of demos and go to, um, even though we can't right now because we're in the middle of this coronavirus thing, mm -hmm. uh, normally you would want to go to as many trade shows as you can. You want to meet people face to face. You need to be, uh, to just be willing to put yourself out there and, mm -hmm. uh, and be humble about it too. Say, look, this is what I've got. Tell me what you think. And, you know, the reason that we found the use cases that we did is not, that's not because, I mean, I, I'd love to even, I would definitely not give myself credit for it. I would love to give my team credit for it. But frankly, where we really got the use cases was from talking to people who, right. you know, worked in those industries and they told us, this is what I could do with this technology. This is what I could do with this. I could use it for this and I could do that. And this is the problem that I have. And if your technology can do this, then oh my God, that fixes this problem. Um, that's so much better, you know, identifying the problem first and trying to think up a problem. There's three right. types of products in my mind. There are, there are products that, um, solve a solution that doesn't exist, uh, sorry, they're a solution to a problem that doesn't exist. And that's a very hard company to run. That's not one that you want to run. Um, then there are companies that solve, they have a product, there's a solution to one pro problem. Um, and those are, those are easy to run, right? Um, and not easy to run, but those are probably, you know, most successful companies fit into that category. 
And then you've got uh, the third category where you've got the most opportunity for major growth, right? Lots and lots and lots of not only vertical, but horizontal scaling, uh, but also a risk, which is when you have a solution to many problems, which is the bucket that I would say we fit into because we found these problems. We didn't make them up. We weren't looking for them. Um, and that one technology solves them all um, in varying, to varying degrees. So what we have to do is uh, the challenge here is the focus. And the first couple of years of the company, uh, if I told you I knew exactly where to focus and exactly what to go after, I'd be the biggest liar ever. Every investor we have would laugh because they know that, I, that, that we spent the first couple of years trying out 50 different things. And, um, and actually the cool thing was that we didn't have any, this is either cool or depressing depending on how you look at it. It wasn't really our ideas, but you know, like uh, the algorithm was our ideas, right? Like the technology we, we thought up for a use case. But the other use cases weren't things that we necessarily thought up. We might have, you know, helped work out kind of how it solves the problem. But we certainly didn't come up with the problem, obviously, with the, with the people who presented it to us. And we solved so many of them. We didn't know which one was made the most sense. And they were all extremely lucrative. And I've been told so many times by so many people, if you don't go into this, you're an idiot. You're a moron if you don't go into this industry. Oh, my God, this would be so useful here. You're a moron if you don't go like, The thing is, I realized after a while, I'm a moron no matter what I do, according to most people. So, uh, you know, if I've got to be a moron, which sounds like the least moronic idea. And very often, I was wrong. Um, we tried to go into, at the very beginning, you know, several different areas of application that we realized were just, um, they were lucrative and the technology worked. But the sales cycles were complicated because there were third parties that had to get involved to facilitate it working because there was hardware that had to be in, uh, brought in um, for these specific types of use cases. And they were really complicated. Uh, there, there, were a lot of, there were a lot of very complicated regulations around how, how to work with these um, in different areas, like in healthcare and stuff, it's complicated. So we realized after a while, you know, we, let's leave those to the side. We kind of took a more holistic picture and we said, okay, let's try to just think about things you know, as, as broadly as possible and as narrow down, uh, see if we can find a trend. And what we found, and we didn't make this up, we've read, this is something we've read and a lot of people have been talking about for years, is that you have the product life cycle, right? I've got an idea for something, I design something, I either procure it or have it uh, built, and then I, uh, you know, and then I do quality control, and then after it's been in use for a while, I do inspections, and I realize, oh man, this could have been so much better if I did this other thing. And so I have another idea, which is that, that circle, right, is the product life cycle. And the, the second half of that product life cycle is harder than the first half because you need things like 3D scanners, you need things like that. Now, our technology can handle that now. But when we were getting started, that was a lot of com uh, complexity to add into our you know, baby software, yeah. uh, dealing with all these other machines. So we decided at the beginning, let's just focus on the beginning of that, right? You've got an idea, you have a design, you have a CAD file. We don't need to worry about hardware. We don't have to worry about scanners and stuff, which today, again, it's not a problem, but back then it was. And that gave us some clarity on where to focus. So the hardest thing is one, focusing and figuring out where to focus. And the only way you can do that is by screwing up. I mean, you, you, no one knows in, in, intuitively. And everyone I talk to, even investors, and I won't name anybody, you know, and, um, but you, especially, you know, some of the earlier investors that we had, a lot of great, very, very intelligent people had very bad ideas, myself included, uh, as far as having bad ideas, uh, had bad ideas about where to focus first. And it's just, you have to like, have some exposure to it before you find out the truth. And then as far as how to get into these companies, if you have, if you, what you have is real and what you have is novel, you know, you're not selling snake oil. You don't really have to try too hard to get their attention. Mm -hmm. What you have to be prepared for is the complexity of how long these deals take and the, right. the sales cycle you have to go through and the follow-ups and the fact that you do 15 demos for any given company, even though you should have sold it after the first one, that wasn't fire and I got to go to IT people. So it's, it's the complexity of the deal that takes up time. Right. But um, if you just get, you know, 
get out there, talk to people. Eventually, if you have something that's worth uh, their time, they will find you in, in most cases. What if, I guess right now, I don't necessarily know how cutting edge the technology is, but it seems like you're, if not the only one, you're one of the very few people that are doing this at a global scale. Mm -hmm. How much harder would it be if, say, I didn't have such a cutting edge technology and people were actually looking for the solution already, right? Like there was already demand where it seems like in your case, you were, you were pretty much creating all the demand by going to these uh, trade shows, by meeting to with with custom, with prospects face to face and doing demos. How do you think that would have been any different for you? If what we had already existed or it wasn't as novel, uh, it would have been so much easier. <laughs> Seriously, it would have been easier, much easier. The, the, the most complicated part of our sales cycle at FISNA. Uh, and then a lot of people say, oh, well, you got, it's easy for you because you guys have something that no one's ever seen. Um, and it's like, no, that just makes it hard, right? Because people try to, they, they try to put your product into a category and it's always wrong, right? Mm -hmm. So one category that we keep hearing all the time is, oh, your shape search, right? Which is a tiny category and a tiny area and does a very limited, very specific thing and a very specific way. It's like, well, you can search for shapes and you can, you, yes, yes. So in a way, yes, shape search. But shape search doesn't, the traditional shape search doesn't allow you to find um, parts of part within other parts. It doesn't allow you to see um, things that almost like, a, and I'm using an analogy here obviously, but like a DNA level. And it doesn't really let you do true machine learning because you have to normalize the data first. What traditional shape search does is it look, uses more traditional technology like uh, 2D to 2D, you know, use like CNNs, a lot like machine, regular old machine learning uh, for 3D models and it finds similar whole 3D models. I can find that this class is similar to this class, right? But if there's a straw inside of it, I don't know that that's a straw. I think that's part of a glass, right? So there's a lot more complexity to what we do than the than those markets. So trying to differentiate. So the thing is that even though we're very, 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 very different from everybody, and we have that's why we have the intellectual property protection. Most people don't need to patent software or you know algorithms right now. It's, just, it's, a, it's a fool's errand. And I know that better than anyone. We got I'm an you know IP attorney, but we did it here because what we have is extremely different, and uh, and it, it, it took us a lot of money. And I skipped over many years of hardship and uh, a lot of a lot of work and a lot of failure to get to where it actually worked. So we do have an advantage in the market right now where we're at least a year or two ahead of anybody who's actively in or looking in at this market, right? The best we can tell them that's when that I've got that I'm very good authority that we're at least a year or two ahead right now. And we're trying to keep that edge or grow that edge, I should say. The, but the hardest thing is that when you have something that people or even the solution itself, let alone the like technology is something that the people aren't used to seeing it's, it's really hard and it's kind of like, um, you know, one of the better expressions and I'm gonna butcher it here because this, this isn't verbatim what he said, but it was something along the lines of if I asked people what they wanted, it would have been a faster horse. This was Henry Ford, right, maybe been in the car, right? So yeah. uh, the thing is when you come up with a car, people are like, okay, the funny thing is in software, people will make comparisons and they'll say, well, this horse is weird because it's, you know, these, these legs are round, you know? And it's like, well, they're not legs, they're wheels. They're like, whatever, they're legs. Uh, you know, and uh, and it, it doesn't seem to like hay very much. And it's like, well, it doesn't take hay, it takes gas. And they're like, well, this horse is stupid. Like, no, no, it's not a horse. It's a car. And you have to explain, it's software, it's a little bit different, right? It's not as yeah. hands-on. So you have to explain it to them more. And that makes the sales cycle complicated because you're explaining, and then once they finally get it, you get this aha moment. 
and they're like, wow, I love it. It's faster and it doesn't require hay and it doesn't, you know, it, it's all, it can't get sick, right? <laughs> it's got all these advantages over a horse per se. Right. Um, the problem is that, um, you know, you, in a bigger company, you'll get someone like that who becomes like almost this like, um, I, don't, I don't mean this in a negative sense, I mean in a very positive sense, they become an ally almost to a fanatic level, right? Once right. they get that, that, that aha moment. This, the person that you've dealt with at first now is like your biggest uh, your, your biggest uh, ally ever. And they're like, they are um, just evangelizing your product extremely hardcore within the company. And then we've actually had that happen so many times that we've had companies where we almost lost a deal because they thought that we had bribed the person to go <laughs> uh, convince them to buy our technology. They're like, yeah. they're like, they, they actually told us like the thing that scares me most is that this guy won't shut up about it. And I don't know if he's got stock in your company or what. And I know that sounds a little bit braggy, but it's just, you know, it's because they have that aha moment for themselves. They right. see, Oh, this, I, I finally get what this thing is. But right. now their boss who has to sign off on it is saying, so tell me why this stupid horse with round legs is any good. And right. why is this guy so excited about it? Right. So that's the difficulty. If it was another horse, it'd be easier. Mm -hmm. um, sure. It would be harder in some cases because you have competitors you have to worry about there. Right. One right. thing that we're blessed with is very little competition right now. Mm -hmm. um, if, or if there is competition, you know, it's typically the they're, competition. They're one, year, they're one year behind. <laughs> they're a year behind. And so it's like, we can beat them in any test uh, if they really are competitors, but typically like what we're competing with is the old way of doing things. Right. And the old way of doing things is terrible. So, we don't really have the kind of comp competitive uh, concern that a lot of companies have, which is great. That's a huge relief, yeah. but we do have another very unique issue, which is explaining to people why this horse has round legs. Explaining just the product itself. I think that's one of the biggest issues with software, especially when it's cutting edge. It's, you know, how do I educate people when, when they don't even know what they're looking at? Um, so right. what are some of the ways that you guys do that? Especially, I think it's important to know, right? if you were used like maybe there, there are some pivots that are currently taking place in, 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 you know, whether it's marketing, uh, how you're doing things right now, you know, given the, the current situation where we can't go anywhere. Um, but how are you educating people say now, since you can't go to trade shows since, you know, you, you can't go give a live demo or something like that. It's a great question. Uh, right now. So uh, the, the honest answer, I wish I had something more profound and more useful for your audience, um, but I don't, I'm not going to lie. So uh, right now we're lucky in the sense that we've got pent up demand mm -hmm. um, because we had uh, a lot of companies that are already interested. We've got a fairly small team. We've, we uh, actually right now have a waiting list of customers to install this at. So yes, we're worried about COVID-19 and its impact. And I'm sure, and no one's, I mean, subsetting alone because of the human factor of course but right. uh but also from a business standpoint it is concerning because we don't know what impact that's going to have but that's going to be a little bit longer down the road for us just because we've got so much momentum currently mm -hmm. so the fact that we're not out of trade shows and stuff like that is it hurting us not now will it hurt us in the future maybe you know it's hard to say right now because these sales cycles are complicated they're long um and the product is evolving extremely quickly so it's kind of hard to say yeah, that's awesome. We'll switch to a little bit more about personal, you know, type of questions regarding you being a founder, uh, you know, building the company and stuff like that. But what's one of the hardest things so far as, you know, building a company, building a team, maybe I'm not entirely sure if you have a family or not. Um, but you know, everything is, I think, I, I personally think that there isn't really work-life balance. There's just, you know, there's just life and you have to make it work however you, you have it. Yeah, so, perfectly so. Um, you know, what, what, what is the, the situation in that sense? 
So I actually uh, love what you said. And uh, it's a point that I like to make all the time is that I actually hate the word balance because um, I mean, it can be taken in different ways. But one of the ways of looking at it and the way that it often gets misused is people will say, I need this work-life balance. And really what they're saying is I need to half-ass both, you know, so that, uh, so that, that I'm not going crazy. And like, no, that's awful, man. You should be all in about work and all in at family. And a lot of times be like it's like okay i can't do that i can't i'd be at work all the time my family would never see me or i'd be with my family all the time i'd never go to work and i'm like that's not true you know you can't you, even if you didn't have a family you couldn't work 24 hours a day without sleeping without doing anything else without recharging without you starting to really be bad at your job right mm -hmm. so that's not true and you also if you had no work and nothing else to do and you know for whatever reason and you could just spend all the time with your family they would be pretty tired of you after a while. If you spent 24 hours, you know, you know, doing nothing but doting on them and spending every minute with, with you know, in, in near proximity, uh, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year, they'll go nuts after a while. So <laughs> I think you don't need to balance. You can be really, really aggressive in both areas of your life. The thing I think is important is to obsess, you know, be all in on whatever you care about. And that, that doesn't have to be family, it doesn't have to be business, it doesn't have to be anything in particular, but whatever it is for you, you should be obsessive about it. It's, um, it makes life worth living, you only get one shot. Right. I love it. I love it. If there are any SaaS companies out there that you look up to that you think, you know, these people are just crushing everything that they're doing, which ones are those? Or if it's just one? <sighs> That's a good question. So I, I typically don't think in those terms. Sometimes I'll look at companies and I'll be like, wow, they did really well in this. Or man, they're making a lot of money. Or wow, they did this really well. But I don't really envy or copy any of them. You know, even the really big traditional ones. Um, and the reason for that is that I think that there's... You know, what works for someone doesn't always work for somebody else. And, um, and I don't really like the idea of utilizing strategies before I know the goal. I, I, I think so. Let me explain what I mean by that. Um, if you try to follow what somebody else does, even in just a cultural way, right? Mm -hmm. um, that, can, that can be a bad thing. So looking at them and thinking about what they're doing and using it for inspiration, wonderful. Absolutely should do that. You know, we've got some great people on our team from amazing companies like, you know, Google, for example. And um, they bring amazing experience and really good ideas into the company. And some of them, sure, yeah, we should totally do it exactly like they do. But looking at that and saying, oh, because Google or whoever, whoever does it this way, we should right, do it exactly right. that way. No, not at all. Um, so I don't really look at any company and say, oh, they're crushing it and I want to be them or mm -hmm. I want to be like them. I just think, okay, these are some things they're doing well and uh, it's smarter than what I'm doing, so I should uh, adopt it. But um, I think the way to think through it, instead of you know, trying to adopt what people are doing from a day-to-day -day or from a planning perspective, is you, know, you have to set the goal for your company. And you know, the goal for your company can't be the goal for somebody else's company. It's, gotta be, it's, it's yours, it's a, a, hopefully a different company. You're not just copycatting somebody else, hopefully. So your goals are gonna be different. And that means that the strategy's gotta be different. And that's one thing that I think is the most important thing to remember as an entrepreneur is that you should never take this, you know, we're all trained and biased to think from, you know, uh, we start with the plan or the road and then we end up at the, at some random outcome or some, you know, instead of planning from the goal and saying, well, if that's where I want to be in five years or a hundred years or whatever, you know, where do I need to be in four years, three years, two years, one year, tomorrow, you know, today. So planning backwards like that. Uh, is actually the right way to do it. What we're doing right now is going to go backwards. We're, we're, we're thinking in the wrong direction. So I don't look like looking at those companies and saying, uh, well, they're really crushing it and uh, trying to emulate them. Um, just because that's that's one way, that's one trap of the falling into, let's get focus on the path instead of the goal. And our goals are different, so we can't follow that exact same path. What works for them might not work for me. But if they're doing something that works for me, uh, sure, you should absolutely consider adopting it. And make, you know, but also realize that you have a great brain too. And um, 
you know, if I told you every single thing that we do at FISNA and we spend the next seven hours talking about it and you decide, you know, I would think you were pretty stupid if you came back to your company and did verbatim the exact same this thing every day the same way. <laughs> yeah. Do, you got to put your own spin on it because they're, totally. you know, what's right for us is wrong for you. Absolutely. Now, if you could go, let's say for whatever reason, and I'm interested in, because in, in, you have a, an interesting way of looking at things and I like it. So I'm interested in seeing what your what your answer to this is going to be. But if you could go back to you know the first day when you started Fisna, what would you tell yourself if you could do something differently? I wouldn't do it because you wouldn't learn. Here's the thing: there's the butterfly effect, right? Anything can affect anything. And sure, I could go back and potentially become ten thousand times more successful, mm. but um, I could also go back and totally ruin it. Right. And the reason I wouldn't go back and tell myself something is because the most important lessons I've learned are the things I've done wrong. You know, um, the things that I never did and therefore don't know if they worked or not. I don't know if those are good ideas or bad ideas because I haven't done them. So there's no lesson there at all. Things that I've tried and then have not worked have been, even if it's painful, they've been really good, important, valuable lessons. Mm-hmm. So we got here where we are, uh, we got where we are organically um, by taking every twist and turn and mistake that we had. Mm-hmm. So knowing that our path got us to where we are and knowing that I have the ability right now with where we are to move us forward, I wouldn't go back in time and change something. That would uh, rob, uh, rob me of what I needed the most, which is the lesson. Right, I love it. Uh, do you have a favorite book? No, no books. And where can well, people- I love books, but I don't have a favorite. <laughs> <laughs> uh, is there a book you recommend? Many. Um, Zero to One is a really good book. Yeah. And that's a really good one. Things by Peter Thiel. Um, <laughs> the Happiness Advantage is a really good book. Um, wow. I, I love the psychology behind that. That's a really, really good book. Uh, underrated, but you should definitely read it. Um, there's the classics, you know, that every person in business listens to the books that I think is a genre make the most sense are ones that have to do with mindset. Uh, I get really bored with tactics and strategy books because, you know, again, what works for one person doesn't work for everybody. That same thing. Yeah. And the thing is that mindset is 99%. I mean, like I really believe in the 80, 20 rule, not, not as a saying, but as, because it's actually a rule of nature that there's mathematical principles behind the 80, 20 rule. Um, that, which we can get to a really nerdy conversation about if you wanted to, but we don't have time. So uh, the 80-20 rule is that it applies here too. 80% of your success is your mindset and 20% at most is, is how you actually execute that. But if you actually look at how you're executing on a day-to-day basis then how you go about um, getting there, 80% is the goal and then having the right mindset and 20% is um, the path and having the right strategies. Uh, being able to deploy the right strategies uh, is also going to have the 80-20 rule apply. Right. You're going to have to have that strength of character and that mindset. So if you take it, the 80-20 rule and you apply it twice, you're down to 90, uh, I think it's 96%, 94%, uh, something like that. So only like around 4% or so of your success, or 8%, I forget the exact number, I have to do it again in my head, and I'm, uh, mm-hmm. but like a, a very, very small, less than, nine, less than 10% of your success is going to be based off of um, is actually going to be based off of the strategies that you know and the, and, and the techniques that you've learned. Not saying they don't matter. They totally do. But the reason mindset matters so much more is because to pick up a book about strategy, you have to have the right mindset. You'll never pick up that book. You'll never read it if you have the wrong mindset. Mm-hmm. So I think that keeping the right mindset and building that is much more important than learning any one particular strategy because right. the strategies will come with the right mindset. Yeah. Love it. And Paul, where can people find you online? Uh, 
anywhere. I mean, uh, you can go to LinkedIn and look me up there. Uh, you can go to fisna.com, P-H-Y-S-N-A. Um, and I'm sure you can, if you fill out something there, you can get hold of me that way. Um, but, you know, in general, I think the easiest way is LinkedIn. Cool. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for being on here today, Paul. It was a pleasure having you. I loved our conversation and uh, stay safe. And uh, thanks for being on here. Appreciate you it. too. Thanks for having me. Take care. Bye-bye. You too. Bye.